Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Our guest this week on A Voice and Beyond is Dr. Ginevra Williams, who returns to the show to speak candidly about her teaching career. From her early teaching days, to the journey which has led her to where she is at presently in her role as a co-founder of Vocal Health Education. Ginevra has earned the respect of our voice community as a leading exponent in the field of vocal health and singing teaching. After a successful career in opera, Ginevra turned her attention to investigating healthy and efficient vocal function. The combination of academic study and practical experience has resulted in her unique perception for understanding the human voice. In this interview, Ginevra shares her career journey, the many battles she provoked and endured along the way, and the harsh lessons learned both personally and professionally. This discussion is focused around the importance of collegiality, compassion and understanding in our singing voice community and how leading in this way can have positive outcomes for our students. Ginevra is an advocate for student-centred learning and the teacher training that she has co-created as part of vocal health education endorses a person-centred philosophy. She explains the importance of this philosophy, the barriers she is trying to break down through this work, and how VHE has been developed for all teachers, irrespective of age, stage of development, and experience. This is a truly honest and rare look into Ginevra's career, and I appreciate her willingness to so openly share her stories and her thoughts on this show. I felt truly honoured to hold space for this discussion with Dr. Ginevra Williams, and I'm sure you will love hearing her story. So, without further ado, Let's go to today's episode.
Welcome to A Voice and Beyond. It is evening here in Australia and it is morning for you, Dr. Ginevra Williams. How are you? I'm really well. I'm so pleased that we're talking together, Mary Circus. I think we're going to have a great time. I'm really (laughs) pleased too. I'm just worried about what's going to come out of our mouths. It's always a concern at the best of times, but you and I have had some wonderful discussions over the last couple of times that we've connected. And I think, I think the listeners are going to be in for a treat. Yeah, it's time. It's time for me to, to face some of the mistakes that I've made and put them in the context of what's been going on and what is going on and, and help myself to move beyond and other people perhaps. So it sounds like this is going to be a healing journey. And if I had a couch and you were in this country, I would say, Ginevra, just take a, you know, a moment here, lie on the couch and tell me what's really going on. <laughs> what's going on? I'm going to begin actually with my current teaching philosophy. Okay. And then... Okay look at why why I feel that's so important based on, on what's happened for me and for a lot of other people. And my current philosophy, you know, philosophy is not a method. It's not a, um, any kind of uh, anything really one could teach other people to do. It's just a way of thinking. And the philosophy is based on person-centred interactions. What does that mean? It means that when I am working with somebody, I'm basing everything I do on them, on their, on how they feel, on what they want, on what's happened before in their life, where they want to be in the future. And I'm not, I'm trying very hard not to impose my own wish on them. I can use my own knowledge to inform but not to impose anything. So, for example, if somebody comes in and their body use is a bit haphazard or a bit um, what I would think unhelpful, maybe they've got high breathing, maybe they are standing in a way that is is holding on, is a bit tense or something, uh, instead of telling them a better way of doing it, I would explore what their way feels like, why, how they've arrived at that, what is going on with their own body history. They may have had injuries. They may have had um, things that have happened to them, ways that they've been taught in the past. They may have adapted because they've played an instrument that is asymmetrical. There could be all sorts of reasons. They may be hypermobile. There are a lot of hypermobile students in the performing arts and that in itself will lead to holding patterns people develop holding patterns because of their um psychological state that they're defending against something you know there's there's lots of reasons and if I can yeah and if I can sort just go a little bit deeper into why and what it feels like for the student then together we can come up with something that will help them to do what they want to do a bit more easily. 
I love all of that because I completely endorse that and that is how I teach. And I love how you said too about how it feels in their body because I'm a big one for asking students. I use a number rating system when it comes to energy levels, to effort levels, to volume levels, things like that. So I just say if it's about energy, I say, well, do you feel like you're flatlining here, <laughs> like you're almost dead? Or how energised was that? Would you say that was a 10? But it's great to know what they're thinking. We're not in their bodies and whatever number they give us is the right number for them and then I feel we need to work from there. We need more energy increase from whatever number that is. If it needs to decrease, decrease from there. But yes, but and all of the above of what you said, I think it's so important that that we take that student-centered approach. It's not about us. We need to get out of the way sometimes, don't we, as teachers? We're there to guide, but we're not there to impose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, in the past, I have done a lot of imposing, a lot of this is the right way to do it, because I have an, an idea in my head of what the, the most efficient way to use a body to make sound can be. But if I just try and impose that straight away, it doesn't take account of any of the other factors going on for that person. Exactly. And everybody who comes to singing, whether they're coming for a singing lesson or whether they're coming for some rehabilitation work with me or whether they're just coming for a little bit of a checkup, they are the sum of a lot of different influences in their lives. Even young children have been told many things by many people mm -hmm. about what's good practice, how to stand, how to breathe whether they need to make a lot more noise, whether they need to make a lot less noise. We're all given, you know, shush up, you know, shut up messages and I can't hear exactly. you messages and all of those things, which all feed in. So true. So this way of thinking that you have now, this philosophy, and by the way, I love that you defined that it was that a philosophy is not an approach and it's not a tool because I think sometimes the word pedagogy is misused also and we forget about the philosophical side of pedagogy, which is a lot of what it is and a tool is not actually a pedagogy. And so where you're at now, now you've had a massive career as a teacher, as a singer, you're an author, you're a voice researcher, you've done a lot in, in your career. When you first started, what was the way of thinking that you had then and how did you come to this realisation? When I first started singing, I was very trusting because I came from a culture which was quite an old-fashioned way to raise children, that you were seen and not heard and you did as you were told. And if you did anything wrong, you were sent to your bedroom to think about it and there was a lot of punishment and not a lot of praise because praise would make you big-headed and that's no good either so there it was a quite a, a difficult upbringing I don't think my parents weren't cruel 
they only did what they believed was the best way to bring up a child at the time. But Yes, likewise. Uh, yeah, it didn't work that well for me because my response, my feeling was that I wasn't being heard and that I wasn't allowed to have feelings. So my response to that was to fight and to be so strong and so proud that nobody could get to me. Ah. And also I found that if I, my feelings weren't being heard or respected, I could be clever. So I could get out of situations by being clever. And those patterns come okay. through. Yay, time and time again. And even now, if you ask me what I feel about something, I will stop for a while and then I'll say, well, I think. So, and, it, and it's not about what I think. <laughs> it's about how I feel. Yes. And, and, you know, these things just get so stuck in. Yes. I was more a, like being Sicilian. It was more about don't get mad, get even. And if you can't tell me I can I can't do something, well I'm gonna do it just to defy you. Yeah, yeah. And and I did plenty of that. Plenty of that. So the the pattern then when I was learning to sing when I was a student, I was I did as I was told because that was my learning pattern. And if I questioned things, I was generally told not to be so demanding. That was always my end of year feedback from the staff at the college I was at was that I was very demanding. What, because you ask questions? Yeah. Okay. Was, <laughs> Isn't that how we learn is by asking yeah. questions and then we listen to the answer? Mm. Yes. All but right. I think, I think it probably exposed some uh, lack of knowledge, some weak areas, some insecurities in the staff yes. who didn't have the uh, confidence and courage to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Whereas, well, I'd like to think we've all come a long way since then, but we'll get into that very shortly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was quite demanding and asked a lot of questions. People couldn't answer them, so I made things up. Uh, based on my own feelings and thoughts, you know, I invented, I invented my idea of how voices worked, and then I found uh, the whole community of the voice scientists, and that did open up a lot for me. Opened up a lot, and then I was studying all the voice science, working out how again based on what was known this was in the 90s and we were working with quite crude models of you know the source filter model power source filter um yes. which is not untrue but it's very simplistic and i was working with all of that looking at the structure of the larynx trying to work all that out and then i was having my ideas about what was good practice, what was safe, what was healthy. And at the time, working with a lot of choirs. So I was working with youth choirs. I was working with cathedral choirs. I was working with individual singers. But every time I experienced a problem, 
I would try and feed that back to the conductor, the musical director, and and work with them to sort out a way. And that was where I came across so much resistance because I was, you know, who was I? I was there just to sit in a room and do magic with the voices. I wasn't there to have opinions about how they could be trained in the group setting. Mm. So I felt I was not being heard. Right. Now, it's possible that I was just being very stroppy and opinionated. Surely not you. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite possible. I was not making my voice heard in the most diplomatic of ways. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that to be the truth now? Bit of both. Okay. Because there would have been some bullying. I mean, back in the day, there was a lot of misogyny too, especially if you were dealing with males. That would have been going on at the time. Always with men. Yes, likewise, always worked with males. And there was a lot of bullying and a lot of put down and a lot of silencing by people that I worked with. And it's sad because these were people and the the choral conductors were brilliant in their own right at, at what they did. They weren't voice experts. But because they weren't voice experts, they felt insecure about that. So there was a fear of being found out. And none of the ones that I worked with had the confidence to just say, look, I don't know that. Can you tell me a bit more? Right. So Mm. for them, it was like there was shame in the not knowing. Mm. Whereas there's more shame in not admitting and if we everyone has their strengths and weaknesses in whatever they do even as voice teachers we have our strengths we have our weaknesses and I think it takes a lot of courage and it's a good teacher who admits what they know and what they don't know and that's on a totally different subject but that's when you a good teacher refers out or they go and learn the thing yeah Yeah. Or, I mean, I have had teachers recently who've just said, I don't know, can you go and find out and let me know? Mm. (laughs) I find that a really exciting challenge. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. I'll do that. So how did you retaliate with these individuals? Um, With the choral directors, I think that was probably what, what eventually prompted me to do my PhD research and write a book because... When you write, you make your voice heard. Mm. No one can interrupt you. No one can say shush. So true. When you're writing. And that has been a a default response time and time again. If I found myself in a situation where I have been trying to talk to somebody about something, they have not listened or their own opinion has remained, you know, intransigent. Mm -hmm. I have gone away and written an article. That's really kind. That's a kind way of dealing with it. That's not a bad thing. No, and the article then is is a useful resource for other people. Because I thought you were going to be a firecracker. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I did some other sort of, I think a lot of the time when I was teaching other people's students, that was problematic. So in a lot of the choir 
the youth choir courses that I was teaching on, I would be doing summer school where I would get other people's students coming in and I would have 20 minutes or half an hour to work with them. And my initial response was, what on earth have you been taught? This is just not helping. It's not working. And in those days, I would just impose and I would go and say, well, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to go back to your teacher and say this. And, you, and this is, and I would, I mean, that sounds terrible. It does, that sound, that does sound terrible. And I say, I say that with love. <laughs> that was my subtext. All right. That was the subtext. So what I actually said was a little bit kinder than that. Okay. But the subtext was, I know what's best for you and your teacher doesn't. Ginevra. I know. I didn't know you had it in you. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I actually didn't. I thought you Brits were very polite. I was very polite. That, that's not manners, though. <laughs> I was very polite, but my subtext, my, my, what was going on in my feeling, in my, uh, you know, understanding of the situation was this quite polarised, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. Mm. How can I persuade you? How can I tell you that, that actually there is a better way of doing it? See, I bite my lips, you know, like, when I have a student, because I teach in the conservatorium, it doesn't happen very often, but I only have a half hour with my students and some of them want longer than that so they have teachers outside of the conservatorium or they come to me with years of learning and they will have been told something by a teacher and I just honestly, that is when I have to try and be the most diplomatic I, I, I can possibly be, sometimes I just don't say anything because if I was to open my mouth, I literally would be opening my mouth to swap feet. <laughs> I love that expression. I love that. You know, it's just I, I just I am better off not to say anything and then just proceed with the lesson and do what I have to do. Sometimes I will explain why that might be problematic from science-based knowledge and what we know of the physiology, the anatomy and function. But sometimes I just say nothing because <laughs> it's just no words. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was, I'm talking about a situation that was 20, 25 years ago. This was two weeks ago. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. So I've moved on. Things mm -hmm. have moved on. Teachers' knowledge has moved on. Certainly has. And that is why I'm putting this in the context now of the person-centred work because it takes, it means I can still make changes I can still introduce people to new ways of doing things but it's one that they will be invested in rather than feeling that they've just been bashed about by two different people with opposing views mm. Mm. fast forward to ways of working 
with other teachers. And of course, when I started training teachers, which was probably 10, 15 years ago, I first started doing courses for teachers. Then I had a voice and I was listened to. And then I could be generous and humble and open and more of a person who I would want to be and the person who is a more helpful teacher because I wasn't, I didn't feel I was fighting all the time. Mm. You get more bees with honey. Mm. Not with a baseball bat. Yes. <laughs> That's more like a bull in a china store. <laughs> I know. I know, I know. So that this, I think I've just, I have taught myself this lesson that looking back and thinking, why were those situations so easy and those situations not? And I think of the wonderful conversations I've had with colleagues for, I mean, for 40 years, I've been talking to people about singing and and having Mm. amazing conversations where people listen and we listen to each other. And I have had my mind changed on so many occasions. Mm by people who have something really, really important and exciting to say. Yes, and that leads me into wanting to ask you a few questions about our voice community. And this ties in with what you're talking about, collegiality. Mm. How do you think we're doing as a voice community now in terms of you know, being kinder, being nicer to each other, the sharing of knowledge. Do you think that we're faring okay? And be honest here. (laughs) I don't really know because I'm very aware of the fact that the people I work with are people who've chosen to work with me. Mm -hmm. So the people that I'm training, the teachers that we're training with vocal health education are the most amazing people. I mean, they bring richness and depth and wealth and so much wisdom to the teaching community. And some of them are very inexperienced, but there's some, just some wonderful, wonderful teachers. And I'm talking about hundreds and thousands of them. Mm -hmm. So I think most people in the world are wanting to do the best they can. Nearly everybody is wanting to do the best yes, they can. I agree. I agree with that. And if there is a barrier or a defence, it tends to be because of fear. Fear of being found out, fear of being shown to not know, fear of being wrong, whatever that is because there isn't really wrong or right in this this thing. But fear, fear of of status being threatened. Um, Lots of of fears people have. And so if you can understand what their threats may be, then you can allay those fears and come in and try and have a conversation, giving somebody the... The, um, the platform to say how they feel and what they want before you charge in. That sounds like a totally different philosophy to the one that you had. Yeah. 
It's not my philosophy yet. <laughs> I, well, sometimes, well, I feel that because I've come from the CCM world, mm. I feel like we've had to fight. Yeah. And for, for the, you know, to be, be able to stand alongside our classical colleagues. So I feel that there is a little bit of fight in me. And sometimes I don't like when things aren't fair or people are not being kind. I have been a witness to this. And I feel that, yeah, there is, I know this, we, we have spoken about this, that there is competition and there can be fighting and there can be point scoring in the world. And I believe that it does happen within our teaching community as well. And I think you're right around the fear aspect. I don't know why singing teachers are so fearful about, I don't know if it's they're fearful that they're going to lose students, lose their jobs. They're fearful that they're going to be found out if they don't know something, maybe all of the above. Well, the truth is that we don't really know that much about singing and voicing so when we think we're hugely informed and I've got you know shelves and shelves of books and I've written hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words actually there are sometimes I come across a a conversation or a thought and it, I think whoa yeah we don't really know we don't really know what the most basic influences are on the way we use our voice. Mm. And this has become very evident to me as I've done more rehabilitation work, where I have a somebody coming in who has a healthy larynx and they look like a healthy person. There is nothing medically wrong. And they have a voice that is not working at all. And they, none of the science will explain that. We've never walked a day in anyone else's shoes. We don't know what has gone on with that person. We don't know what they're having to deal with. And the psyche is so involved in all of that. And this is where sometimes I feel that when people are dealing with a particular idea and they're promoting an idea, and this has been my biggest question around acoustics is that, okay, yes, there is something going on in terms of what we're seeing, the spectrogram or whatever it is, but how do we know that by trying to fix that in the way that we fix the other person that it's going to work for the person in front of us, for that singer in front of us? We're all so different and I, that's, that's something that I am getting better. I am more open-minded about acoustics. I spent two weeks talking to Brian Gill, who was very kind in sharing his knowledge and he's convinced me a little bit further about going to study more about acoustics. But that was always my question was how can a, something that we're looking at a graph 
show us what's going on with a singer truly? It can just help. It can help. It's another another kind of biofeedback. It's like looking in a mirror. It's like listening to a recording of yourself. Anything that can give you another insight into the relationship with between what you're feeling and something external. So, you know, looking in a mirror mm-hmm. will give you a, a relate. You'll think, oh, goodness, I was holding my shoulders up. I didn't realise I was doing that. You know, or you'll look in a mirror and think, you know, oh, my, my jaw's lopsided. I didn't even notice that. You know, so there, there are those sort of things. And when you know what you're looking at with a spectrogram, you you will look at it and you you may notice irregularities in vibrato. You may notice that certain uh, areas of, of pitch range in your voice just don't match other areas of pitch range in terms of projection, in terms of upper frequencies or in terms of, you know, there, there are so many things to look at as well as pitch accuracy. You know, I mean, I had a technical problem for years because I was pulling my tongue back too much and on every e-vowel I went flat mm-hmm. and I couldn't hear it. You know, if I could yeah. have heard it, I wouldn't have sung flat. Simples. You know, conductors who say, why can't you hear that's flat? And you say, well, if I could hear it was flat, I wouldn't be doing it, all right? I can't hear it flat because I'm getting a mismatched acoustic signal internally. In those situations, I mean, yes, I learned to reform my whole sense of what my tongue was doing, but I also could have learned that by looking at a pitch biofeedback and realised that I could make adjustments that would make that pitch in tune. What do those adjustments feel like? They feel like I might be letting go of something in the back of my mouth. Oh, what's that? You know, so there are, it's just different ways in. And I'm always using lots of different ways in. I have to admit, I very rarely use spectrograms. Yes, well, the interesting thing that Brian said to me was I think like my ears are my best friend and I'm always listening out and everything that you said, I thought, well, I hear that. And he, his response was, you already have acoustics in your ear. You already know acoustics because you're listening for all those things without realising that is acoustics. Mm. But then it's looking at it, I mean, it's, that's acoustics on steroids when you can work out all that equipment, <laughs> I yes. feel. But, yeah, but there's very little that you see on a spectrogram that you can't hear with your ears. But as a singer, you may not hear it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fair enough. That, that's true. So this is all, all new stuff that we've learned that has taken us forward with our teaching into new ideas, new ways of, of working, new ways of communicating. Do you know, I still come back to the things I was doing 35 years ago. Really? Such as? Just moving, moving. If something is not how you want it to be, if there's a sound that is that is stuck or held or or grating or raspy or any of those descriptors, 
What does that sound feel like when you move your body around? What does it feel like if you lie on the ground, if you hang upside down, if you walk around? What does it feel like if you use your hands while you're doing it or wiggle your hips while you're Mm. doing it? Those are things I was doing with my students in the mid-1980s. Things have come a long way, but some things just don't change. Yeah. Yeah. We can we can continue to research and research, but some of the fundamentals are still the same, aren't they? Mm. And I had stories to explain what was working then. I have stories to explain what is working now. But they're only stories. They're mm. only theories. Mm. I know it's such a difficult instrument. It's we can't see it, we can't touch it, yeah. we can't really, we can't feel it unless there's effort involved, really. So it's it's so difficult to work with. So this is why I think, so I'm going to go back now to yeah. the teachers who may be insecure about their teaching and defensive and, you know, set up camps and gurus and all that. It comes partly from the fact that it's very difficult to evaluate somebody else's teaching. How can you judge that they are an effective teacher, that they're doing the right things? Because listening to their students is one way, but then you don't know what their students were like when they came in, when they started with them. Exactly. Yeah. And some teachers will just pick students who are doing, doing all right at the moment. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. especially in conservatoires where they have such a rigorous audition process that they are very lucky. They can just take the singers who are, are doing fine and just need a little bit of coaching, a little bit of polishing, a little bit of tweaking here and there, and off they go. And then they, those teachers get massive credit and kudos. Give them somebody who is really stuck and they may not do so well. Exactly, exactly. If you're in a position where you work in academia and people go through that audition process, you do have the luxury of working with some very talented students. And Mm. yes, and it's easy for us to judge other people's work. Do you feel that some of that... uh, those people that are setting up camps and planting flags, do you think this whole thing has been exacerbated because of social media? Do you feel that people feel that they have more to prove because there's a platform for them to plant that flag? I think that appeals to just certain people. Some people have the energy to do that. They will make their reels they will make their their sort of social media posts they will put it all out there it takes a lot of work to put all that stuff together to promote yourself in that way and produce all those youtube films and everything is is a huge amount of work and some people have that and want to do that and then they reap the benefits uh other people don't don't do it that way and and I just think, well, it's good luck to you if you if you're prepared to do all that work. That's fine. Great. Well, I do some of that work, but for me, that comes easy. To be fair, all that doing a reel, 
not when I first started, but it's very easy for me now. I just start talking and whatever comes out of my mouth is what comes out and that's what what stays. I, I actually don't edit anything, but people that sit there and type hundreds of words that a lot of the time I don't even understand what they're talking about and probably could have said it in about a fifth of the words that they used, that's a lot of effort. And for me, I just go, I don't see the point of that. And I feel that when I see those kinds of posts, even with all the experience that I have and you know, I do an okay job as a teacher. I have my sort of my strengths and my weaknesses as all teachers do. I admit mine. I have no problems doing that. And I admit what I don't understand, what styles I'm not comfortable teaching and I'm not an expert in. I put my hand up to that. But I still, that seeing that still makes me feel like an imposter and I feel that I've, I'm not a sensitive person and I feel like I've got courage, but I still feel when I see all of that, I go, ooh, I, I would not dare respond to that or I would dare not comment to that. No, and my response would probably be, goodness, what happened in your childhood? <laughs> <laughs> what messages were your parents giving you that you feel now the only way to to actually be heard and and have any kind of status in the world is to talk so much so you drown everybody else out, which is effectively what they're doing by writing hundreds of words. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh I love that. Ginevra. You've just made my evening. I feel so much better about myself now. <laughs> you see, everybody's got it. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got stuff that's happened. I know. And you know, we can explain a lot. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are not hurt by it. Mm. Uh, and you know, there is a lot of hurt going on, but we can explain. We can explain why people do what they do. Um, I want to pick up on something, a tiny detail that we have sure. mentioned before. Sure. When we sure. were talking about evaluating a teacher and evaluating them on the, the output of their students or whatever, I this was something that used to happen when I was teaching other people's students. I would say, what has your teacher told you about breathing? Or what has your teacher told you about tongue position? And they would give me some stuff and I would think, oh, my goodness, that's really a bit peculiar. <laughs> And then I started asking my own students at the end of a lesson or at the beginning of the next, so tell me, what did you take home from last week's lesson? And they would say things like, well, you taught me to breathe from my diaphragm and you taught me to lift my soft palate. And I would say, goodness, I'm really surprised that that was your, your take home message because I don't remember using those words at all. So people will put whatever information that they're taking, they will put their own spin on it and fit it into their own personal model of what they're doing and how they're doing it. 
Absolutely. And it's only a story. Yes. You know, I can't feel what my diaphragm's doing. I can't feel what my soft palate is. I can use a story that I know from theory, from structure and function, that that's probably what's happening. But I don't know for definite that that's what's happening. Mm. But the story helps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know, and students especially, they're great at, telling their own version of what they thought they heard. I had that happen. I asked my students on their way out, okay, so what do you what did you learn today and and what do you have to work on for next week? And some of the things that they come back with and you go, uh, no. Or when they talk amongst each other and then I'll have a student come to me and say, oh, so-and-so told me that in her lesson she did this and I'll, I'll say, no, <laughs> that's not what happened at all. And that's where too sometimes, you know, we're talking about this idea of making judgment based on what students say, but also what about that scenario when this is when I think teachers can be the most brutal in terms of judgment is watching masterclasses. And and you'll be sitting there watching a masterclass and you get a nudge from the teacher next to you and they'll say, oh, I would have done this. Oh, I wouldn't know. I don't think that's right at all. I think that's the problem. And, and people start throwing in all their opinions into the ring or making decisions about what should be going on in a masterclass. And I think that's you know, like a, one of those playgrounds for teachers, for them to kind of muscle their way around a little bit. I did a masterclass some weeks ago in Tasmania and before the first singer came in, I addressed the teachers and I actually said to them, now there's going to be things that go on in this masterclass that you may or may not agree with. But I'm going to tell you my intention and my clear intention for this masterclass before I begin. And that is that I am here for the singer and I'm not here for you. I'm here for this. My goal is that the singer leaves with something valuable from this masterclass and they feel better about themselves than when they first started singing. And it did make a difference. Now, there can be many things that are wrong with the singer or not working for the singer because let's not use the word wrong. There may be many things that are not working for the singer, but I'm going to pick the one that the singer can deal with in that space and in that moment and that they can leave and feel that that's helpful for them. So if I don't do what you think I should do, The reason is because I'm not here to put on a show. I'm here to work with the singer and to make them feel better about themselves and not to feed your egos. Absolutely. I just said it. And and you know what? That changed the whole vibe of the masterclass and everyone was so into it and so engaged and so caring and so kind and supportive of the singer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that you, 
you know, are a hugely experienced teacher, you could have done a hundred different things with that singer. But you only have 20 minutes. I mean, are you going to pick something that's going to take months for them to fix? Mm. Or are you going to find something that's going to make a difference in the quickest, shortest amount of time possible that they feel good about and they don't leave feeling worse about themselves? than when they came into the room. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And that is where I love using imagery and metaphor and emotion and, you know, using different sensory stimulations because if you say to a singer, you know, can you, what, what kind of fabric was that? Or what kind of liquid was that? You know, taking them into a different part of their imagination. You're not imposing anything at all. You're just getting them to open up to other possibilities. Exactly. Which are their possibilities from their internal sense of what they're doing. Again, back to person-centred. Yes. Which is sort of brings, I think, brings me into where I am now in my rehab work. Tell us about that. Because you're heavily involved, you're the co-founder and director of education for vocal health education. Mm. So tell us about that organisation and and what you do within that organisation. The main reason why Stephen and I set it up was to provide a really thoroughly researched, fully accountable way of training singing teachers to firstly be aware of vocal health and be aware of the of some really fundamental things that they, they can do to help singers and for other voice users. And then to train singing teachers to bring that kind of knowledge, that holistic knowledge into their general teaching. So our Vocal habilitation practitioners are, it's a mouthful of a term. It was a term that we had to use those words in order to fit the the US market. Basically, it just means singing teachers with superpowers, right? Singing teachers who are more holistically minded, who are just thinking broader, deeper, wider about their teaching. And then at the top level, the voice rehabilitation specialist. And the voice rehabilitation specialist has done a couple of years of really intense training in clinics, in um, settings, a lot of work in uh, counselling skills and uh, manual therapy skills. So they're all trained at a high level to do manual have therapy manual release with with singers so it's a very much able to come at any kind of work from many many different angles and we wanted to really provide something that was going to be gold standard top level so we've got dozens of tutors and contributors on the course um many many voices it's not just what we think it's it's, we've got people from all over the world contributing their specialisms. We've got at every stage, the teachers are, the singing teachers undergoing the training are assessed 
they are assessed fairly by external people by a very kind assessment method. It's not they don't have a a nasty exam. They there'll be a quiz at some point, but they are there is an accountability, and there's a lot of peer supervision at the higher up they go, the more they are all helping each other. And so that is, again, engendering this collegiality that we've been talking about, that there's a community of people who trust each other, who know what each other's specialisms are, and they know where to go. So this was our our intention. And we've gone back, actually, to conversations we had in 2019, when we were putting it all together, and we were thinking through what the philosophy was would be, what the structure would be, because we are currently trying to set up a, a charitable arm to the whole organisation so that we can deliver training for, for free, so that we can offer bursaries, so that we can go into centres and, and give, give what we can. Yeah. Amazing. So we've gone back to our, our 2019 notes and it's quite... It's very interesting to see what's still there, what the, the foundations were for this training and how we are pretty true to them now. So one of the, of course, one of the things that is essential for this is the in-person training because it can't all be online. You can't teach someone to do manual therapy very effectively online. There's an amazing amount you can do but you can't feel the pressure of their touch. Yes, I agree. I agree. And and that is crucial. You know, the, the manual therapy that we teach people to do is very gentle and it's very, it's not painful. There is no benefit to that. Mm-hmm. So how do you deliver those? Uh, do you hold those sorts of programs every now and again, the in-person ones? Well, funny you should say that, Marisa, <laughs> because we are coming to Australia. Yay! <laughs> I know. How exciting. I know. And we're going to be doing in-person training in, well, in the manual therapy that I talked about. We're going to be doing, I'm going to be doing my Teaching on Voices courses because they are, although I have that as an online uh, resource, people can go to get the films online, actually being in a room with people and talking to a live person about it is so much more enjoyable and more meaningful. I learn way better in person. I must yeah. ask questions. They can talk to each other. We can have a group feeling. So I'm going to be doing teaching on voices. Stephen King is going to be teaching reflux informed practice He's done a lot of research into reflux and... Our worst enemy as singers. Mm. And how, how he can help, how we can help people to find all sorts of different ways to manage reflux, not just by, you know, cutting out all their favourite things from their diet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or taking medications. Yeah, absolutely. Other things we can do. Yes. And so... We're really, really excited because we're going to be in Adelaide, we're going to be in Melbourne, we're going to be in Brisbane, we're going to be in Sydney. Well, that's a big tour. How long will that all go for? A month. So you're going to be in Australia for a month? The whole month of January, yeah. 
So you're going to be in Australia during the summer months. That, that's going to be interesting for you. <laughs> It'll be hot in Brisbane. It's going to be hot everywhere. Well, Melbourne and Adelaide often have 40-degree heats in, in the middle of summer. Wow. Yes, yes. Yep. And then it can change in a second, within minutes, I should say, to the temperature can drop 20 degrees with a cool change. It's very interesting to experience our summers here, very different to the UK. Yes. Mm. I was in Australia in January, uh, when was it, 20, 2000, January. I came over December 99. No, 98, 98 to 99, yeah, because I was pregnant. You okay. know, <laughs> I, can, I can kind of pinpoint things in, in my past by whether what house I was living in and whether I was pregnant life events yes <laughs> I, was, I was pregnant so that was an Australian summer and uh, I remember sitting in the cricket ground in Sydney watching the test match and it was very very hot and mm. it wasn't that comfortable no it would not have been very comfortable no. so in terms of VHE this program mm. that you've put together, what's the response been like? Because I know there's a lot of competition out there. There's so many people with so many different programs, even other programs now that are receiving accreditation. So what or offering accreditation to the teachers who undertake the programs. So what's the response been like for you? Initially, there was a lot of suspicion and a lot more enthusiasm. Why suspicion? Sorry, sorry to butt in there. Why were people suspicious? The people who were suspicious were nearly all clinicians and uh, from mainly from the speech and language therapy. Okay. Field. Because what we do is quite similar. And I've been having conversations with Maurice Goodwin about this. And he's a speech and language pathologist in the US. He's also a singer and singing teacher. But sometimes we look at each other and say, what do you do and what do I do that is actually different when we're in a rehabilitation setting? Mm. And it can look quite similar. And so there is suspicion and fear because what might singing teachers, jumped up singing teachers who think they know about pathology, what damage might they do? So this is something which has been right at the core of our work from the outset is facing those, those fears and those potential criticisms and saying, right, yep, yeah, you're right. It could be dangerous. It could be a difficult misunderstanding. How can we ensure that it isn't? Mm. Can you tell me how you think we could make this work? And I have had some wonderful conversations with so many people who have come in and said, what you're doing is really risky. And I've said, please say more. Wow. So people have said this could be risky. 
That's mm. a big call. It is. It is. And there are risks. There are risks when people, do you know when people, and this can be anybody, it doesn't have to be a singing teacher, but anybody who thinks they know what they're doing and won't ever ask for help or advice. Mm. If you've got someone with a husky voice and you think, oh, I can sort out a husky voice, I can help you, I know what I'm doing, and it remains husky and it just gets steadily a little bit worse, a little bit worse over maybe a six-month period, that voice could have the beginnings of throat cancer. So, you know, there are times when you've really got to know what you're listening for and you've got to know the red flags and you've got to know if this does not sound significantly different within three weeks of working with this person, I need to ask for help. Yes, we have that at Queensland Conservatorium. We have that help there where we can send our students. We have a voice clinic at the Mm. conservatorium. So generally... Our rule of thumb is six weeks. If mm-hmm. there's no change within six weeks, then we refer to the voice clinic. They go, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, yes. That, and so that's teamwork, isn't it? That's yes. collegiality. That's people working yes. together. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. Yeah, they could have been sick. And if they're a gigging singer, they may have gone back to work too soon for a, and may have sung for a number of nights without any rest, the voice is not happy. I mean, there's so many things that can go wrong and it's nobody's fault. But it's up to us to have an idea of, like, to be able to listen and say that sound, that noise wasn't there before, that's new. Yeah. And, and to keep an eye on it. We, I don't necessarily tell the student sometimes depending who the student is. Although I may ask, oh, have you been unwell lately? Have you been getting enough sleep? Are you hydrated? So they don't know that I'm doing this diagnosis. Yeah. It's all questions that they think, oh, yeah, she's asking me about my voice and about my health. But I've heard something, but I'm not going to alarm them because that's all I need is for them to get in their heads about that sound. Because it may be gone the following week and we're all fine. But then some awareness from for them about the fact, you know, does, that, does your voice feel different today? Why do you think it might feel different today? What might have been going on in, your, in this, this week? What's been happening? When did it start to feel different? What was going on then? Those are all, I think those are very empowering questions that mm. you can ask the student. Mm. So our vocal health first aid training is that it is how to help someone at the basic level. Somebody presents with something that is unfamiliar or something that's preventing them from doing what they want to do. And how can we know how to ask the right questions in order to ascertain whether it's something that they can just sort themselves out, a bit of self-help maybe a little bit of vocal technique work or who they need to go and talk to for further advice. Now that education is crucial and how can that education possibly be dangerous or risky? Mm. Mm. It's power, it's knowledge. Yes, knowledge is power. It's just going to help everybody. Yes, yes. And 
I have found less and less resistance to our work as it's become more established. Mm. I knew that would happen. Mm. I knew it was just a question of time. If, if you believe in what you're doing and you do it with integrity and just hold your head up high, eventually it'll speak. Yes. And what about teachers who come to you, say, who are early in their careers or private studio teachers who haven't had a lot of education, maybe they're singers who have just decided to start doing some teaching. How do you work with those teachers? Are they able to manage the the knowledge that you're teaching them within that program or is it too much? Like is it inclusive and it's for everybody or do we need to have a certain amount of prior knowledge before doing the program? The vocal health first aid requires no prior knowledge. So we've had 16-year-olds doing it. We've had people, we had one lovely uh, older lady doing it because her husband had been diagnosed with throat cancer and she wanted to help guide him on his journey through voice use. Mm -hmm. No expertise, no knowledge at all prior to doing the course. We've had a lot of school teachers, choir directors, people who have a little bit of, of knowledge and they work alongside or with singers. So you don't need any prior knowledge at all for that course. For the, the further levels, we do like people who've had a little bit more experience. So the, the habilitation professional we ask for, people who've got about a thousand hours of teaching experience. Right. Um, it's, you know, a couple of years. Yes. Um, people who haven't had that will just say, okay, what have you done instead? And they may have other really valuable experience that is transferable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not an absolute, it's a guide. Yes. yes. And there are some people who we, I, I um, did in a final assessment for somebody a couple of weeks ago, a very young woman. She's only, she's 23. That's uh, young. That's young. But my goodness, she was so fascinating. She had really thought about what she was doing. She had such energy. She had such an open heart to all of this. And I just thought, do you know what? That is so valuable. And I kept thinking about my younger self being shut down because I was young and because I was female and what on earth did I know and how could I have a voice? And so that was part of my mission is actually just to give everyone a chance. Yes, it's inclusive. It's not creating a divide in our community like many other things are, actually. There's a lot of programs, methodologies that are creating a divide. And I love the fact that this is for everybody because one of my fears is that early teachers, early career teachers and uh, people in private studio may start to get left behind mm. as the science evolves, as, as the information world becomes greater, the knowledge base is greater. I feel like some of these teachers are going to get left behind and 
they will definitely have imposter syndrome when it comes to even joining a professional organization where they can go and receive that knowledge. Like I know with ANATS, when I, I was the president of the Queensland chapter and I sat on the board of the National Committee there for a few years, that was one of the big, biggest criticisms was the fact that unless you had an academic job, that you weren't welcomed into that environment and it wasn't the case. But I think just having that separation through not having knowledge is the problem. And it's other people's perception. It's not that that barrier is erected, it's that people perceive the barrier. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the teachers say to me, you know, what I really want to do is improve my knowledge of anatomy and I want to be able to know all the names of everything. And I say, that's great, but knowing the names won't make you a better teacher. No. It's a shortcut, but you know what? You can always look them up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> AI will tell you. <laughs> yeah, evaluating people's abilities. I always think about... What have they got that can't be taught? And what is missing that can be taught? Mm. Mm. And when somebody's got an attitude or an approach or a philosophy or just a manner with themselves, which is open and honest and enthusiastic and curious and ready for changing their mind, ready for taking on information, that is Fabulous. Exactly. I say open mind and open heart. Mm. And we all need to have that, especially in our community where we're dealing with human beings at their most vulnerable. Absolutely. So what's the greatest lesson you've learnt over the years from that young Ginevra to now slightly more mature but still young Ginevra? (laughs) Still, there's lots more to do in life. Um, The lesson is, oh, the one lesson, listen. Well, you can have a few. Yeah, listen, yes. Listen, uh, allow somebody to speak, and if they are frightened to speak, try and create a space where they feel they they can be heard and they can say what they want and they can be who they want to be. So listening and maybe counting to 10 before jumping in. Mm-hmm. I can use that one. Well, one, because <laughs> uh, you and I have no shortage of energy and enthusiasm and opinion. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that will still be there after we've counted to 10. Yes. But having counted to 10, the way it comes out of a mouth might have shaped itself into something that's a little bit less confrontational. Yes. I, I'm actually not confrontational. I don't hold back, but I think I'm kind in the delivery. My problem is my face because I do not have poker face. 
<laughs> I I will react with my face before I even know my face is doing anything. <laughs> it gives everything away. Sometimes my students go, what's wrong? And I go, everything's fine, not judging by your face. <laughs> That's something that we have to learn on audition panels, that you, you have to sit. If you, I was on an audition panel last week for a whole day and sitting there with a, a sort of, you know, gentle smile on my face for the entire day while I was thinking all sorts of thoughts and hearing all sorts of things going on. It was, yeah. that, that was a challenge. That's hard. I probably would have to wear a paper bag over my head. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good look. <laughs> oh. Okay, so what can we all do better? within our singing voice community, do you feel? We can assume that people are trying to do the right thing rather than assuming they are stupid. We can give people respect. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even if somebody is really, has a very different message from my message or is giving information out in a way that does not fit my idea of what what that could be I can if I think about it and count to 10 enough times give them (laughs) enough respect to say that is fascinating tell me more <laughs> Sorry. I have this vision of you sitting at home with a voodoo doll sticking pins into it if you don't like what someone's saying. <laughs> Gosh, I'm not quite that bad, Marisa. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. No, no. I know you're not. I'm I'm it is all in jest. I think it's great that we're having this this discussion and we can kind of laugh at ourselves as well. I mean, haven't we all come a long way? And for me, this podcast has taught me so many lessons. I've had an incredible variety of guests talking about an incredible number of topics. And I tell you what, I listen to everyone. I give them all grace. And sometimes I'm thinking, I don't know about this, but I tell you what, come the end of the podcast and that interview, I have always learnt something. There's never been anybody that I've not learnt one thing from in all that time by giving people that grace and listening and thinking about it. There is something to be learnt from everybody. That's so true. Yeah, that is, it's been a huge lesson. So I know you've got this tour coming up, which we're going to be promoting. It's so exciting. We're going to share the links to all the work that you do, this amazing work, and and well done for, for having a program that is so inclusive for a start, and I love that it's holistic. That because we are human beings with minds and emotions, psyche, 
a body. I mean, we're not this. We're we're a whole creation of so many parts and the sums of so many parts. So I love that, and that it's student centered. You're you're endorsing a student centered approach to teaching, which is so 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 important. I love all of that. So thank you for for bringing that into our community, Ginevra, and Stephen, of course. Can't forget Stephen. I haven't met Stephen, but hopefully I will. You will, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we finish up? Our website, which is vocalhealth.co.uk, and everything is on there. And people can do your do the program at any time. They have pay and they can do it at any time. So it's not that they have to wait for an intake. It's just whenever they wish to do it. They can jump on whenever they like. Uh, I mean, there are some courses like the counselling skills for singing teachers, which have to be at a set time because they're delivered online, but mm-hmm. live online. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Ginevra. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Keep up the brilliant work and look forward to seeing you soon. And you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag avoiceandbeyond. I promise you, I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.